quick word before the show. News is happening fast, but doesn't take a lot of time to keep up. The NPR podcast Up First is the best way to get 10 minutes of the day's top news every weekday morning. Check out Up First on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Every Tuesday on the show, we bring you a deep dive, an interview with one person or on one topic. Today, in honor of the 4th of July, from America's best political satire, HBO's Veep, actor Timothy Simons. Timothy plays Jonah Ryan on the show. And just to be clear, that character Jonah, he is the worst. He's basically a bottom-feeding White House aide turned incompetent congressman with absolutely no self-awareness. Anyway, I talked with Tim recently, just as the current season of Veep was coming to a close. He was in a studio in L.A. I was here in D.C., and he was, needless to say, a much cooler dude than Jonah in the show. We talked about how he grew up going to college in New England, how he got to television, some of the crazy jobs he's had along the way. Spoiler, he used to be a bouncer. I also talked about working with Veep star and comic legend Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And, of course, we talked about political comedy in the age of Donald Trump. So here's me and Tim Simons. Enjoy. How is your summer going? Big plans and stuff? <laughs> Travel? My wife and I have kids, so we don't get to go on vacation anymore. We get to go on trips. Uh, wait, um, wait, what's the difference between a vacation and a trip? You enjoy a vacation. You take a trip. <gasps> Whoa! No, this sounds harsh, but do you have kids? Oh, no. <laughs> no, oh, no, okay. no, 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 no. This sounds harsh, but like any parent that listens to this, they're like, yeah. Um, <laughs> doesn't mean, I, I, yeah, I love my kids. They're great. They're fantastic, wonderful, amazing that, human though. beings. Um, whenever I'm not with them, I miss them. And whenever I am with them, I wish I did not have to see them. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we, our summer plans are, kids are going out to Chicago to visit my wife's family a couple days before I am. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go, I have to get some work done in town. It's like all that thing that you learn about as you get into this world is like indie financing is sort of hard to get together. So mm. like I might have some acting jobs over the course of the summer. Like if the funding for movies yeah. comes through, like I could be very busy for the rest of the summer until we start filming the show again. Or I honestly could be doing f all because the financing didn't come together. But yeah, I'm really hope knocking on wood that it does it's and it's all busy out. and great. And then we go back to the show. This is the thing that like people don't think about enough. People in the industry, actors, people in the craft, they're actually always hustling. It's not like you always. get that one job and then you're just set. You're always hustling. Always. And one thing that really has been amazing to see it from this side mm -hmm. has been, this has always been true, that the work is the vacation. Like when it huh. comes to acting gigs, like the work is the vacation. Nothing feels better wow. than when you're on set because you get to just relax and do it. You don't have to hustle. Mm. Because like when we're filming... I don't have to hustle in when we start filming in September. I don't have to hustle because even if I wanted to hustle, you can't. I wouldn't be available to go do it. Mm -hmm. So I just get to relax and be in it. Yeah. Um, it, so it's like a month before the season ends. That's when the hustle starts to pick up again. So like those uh. last three or four episodes uh. every day, like, and, and like, honestly, even in the early stages on my days off, like I write and I try to get together and set meetings and like, try to like think of things that, like, so you're playing like the long game of like, so that right when a season ends, you're trying oh to hit the ground running on stuff. So you, there really is, it's always hustling. And I would have assumed 
As somebody like Tony Hale, like when I met Tony Hale, I was like, he's set. Arrested Development, one of the best of all time. And you meet yeah. Tony Hale and Tony Hale hustles. Man. And I think Tony Hale would have looked at Julia and said, she's set. Seinfeld's one of the greatest of all time. She's one, she's the goat. Yeah. It's fine. Julia Lee Dreyfus f- hustles. Huh. All of hustle. it. It's all hustle all the time. Hustle hard. Hustle hard. Okay, let's talk about Veep. Season just wrapped. I I love Veep so much, and I think part of why I've grown to love it is that none of these characters ever show any growth. They have stayed the same kind of stupid, and in some cases uh-huh. gotten worse over the course of these, uh-huh. what, six seasons. Is that yeah. intentional, and how does it feel to play a character like that? So I, I think that if I'm going to guess, I think that in most cases when it comes to television, awful characters have to have a redeemable exactly. moment where nice music plays and you remind the audience about why they like them. Yes. I also love the fact that we don't. That, <laughs> no, like, they never learn, they never listen, they never grow. And there are moments where you see humanity in those characters. Yeah. But, like, especially in the case of Jonah, I mean, certainly in the case of Selena Meyer, but definitely also in the case of Jonah, they will always make you regret feeling... Uh that sort of empathy for them. Yeah. I mean, know? so is it hard to go on set and be that guy over and over and over again? Because you seem like a nice guy IRL. <laughs> <laughs> no, it. I, I don't know what this says about me, but it isn't. <laughs> I think that like, I think maybe like I, I, I did an interview recently with a guy and he asked a really good question sort of about what's it like playing these scenes and like how do you get emotionally attached to them or, you know, that sort of question because he had heard from another actor that the, that on a different show that they viewed these scenes that they were in as like battles between the two characters hmm. um, and how did that play in like, you know, who's winning these battles, these like these battles of objective and stuff like that, and it's a strange thing because our show, we have those kind of battles, but there's never any emotion behind mm. them. Mm. Like there is a complete absence of emotion and connectedness to what these people are saying. Like with with Jonah, there is emotion, but it's so misplaced that it's not like you're really seeing actual human beings needing something. Kind of sounds like Washington D.C. A little bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, your character. And for those who are listening to this at some point and haven't watched the show yet, watch the show. But basically, your character starts out as um, a White House aide. Yeah, the liaison. The liaison between the VP and the president. Yes. Um, And by season six, you actually end up in the House of Reps. (laughs) Tell people how in the world that happened, because Jonah does not strike me as the kind of guy who would resoundingly win a congressional race. It's funny, if I were to talk about it, and like you spent some time in D.C., so I don't know if this is going to be recognizable to you, but like if you had told me at the beginning that he might win a congressional race, I'd have been like, oh, boy, that's going to be unrealistic. Mm-hmm. But the more and more time you spend around <laughs> these members people. of Congress, <laughs> it, it comes to me as no surprise that he hmm. would. And frankly, it seems like the most realistic thing. He's a charmless man with no self-awareness um, who has failed ass backward <laughs> into this position of power, you know? I agree totally. Where do you, wait, where well, do you live right now? I live in D.C. I was actually in L.A. for two and a half years at NPR's okay. West Coast offices. But I am back in D.C. I, but I was like a West Sider in L.A. Like I oh, okay. did not want to even 
look at anything east of the 405. Whenever I go over to the west side, I do always feel like, because like, my wife and I, we live in Silver Lake, and, oh, and everybody trendy. we know generally, like when we moved here from Chicago, everybody that we knew was there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we just, yeah, we moved in there, and we never go to the west side, but every time that we do, every time we make a trip over, bring the kids to the beach, another thing that I, I guess we're doing just because the kids should have the experience of doing that. <laughs> Um, I, I do kind of look around and I'm like, I get it a little bit. Like I get why somebody would want to live there. Yeah. Like the West side is a Texans version of California, you know, like a beach and sand and bungalows. Like that's what I came for. You're like that guy on, uh, the real world season two who would wear his cowboy boots to the beach. Wait, you got really specific right there. What city was season two? See, it wasn't his name. John, he was the country singer. (laughs) Oh, they like, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. He was really earnest. My favorite season of the real world uh-huh. was probably two. San Francisco, because it had Puck, who was crazy. And then Seattle, because Irene and Steve fought like cats and dogs. And remember, she got Lyme disease, and it was like a whole big to-do. <laughs> it was a mess. I don't think I ever saw Seattle, so I just love that Lyme disease played in. <laughs> Lyme disease was the eighth house member that season. Um, my old one of my really good friends when they were filming the Real World Boston, um, they were in college, and he and all of his friends they found out where the Real World Boston house really? was, and they got super drunk and walked across town, like picking up sticks and weapons what? across the way, just like sort of handheld weapons, that is like so the forty Boston. bottle. That is so yeah. Boston. I lived in Boston for two years. That. Is so awesome. Yeah, and they got there, and they said that this calm came over them. They were gonna go and they were gonna try to beat the shit out of somebody. Uh, they were gonna try to go beat the shit out of the real world cast. And when they got there, they said this calm came over them, and they started all singing "Give Peace a Chance" to. And they said that the cast from the show came out to the windows and saw them all singing uh, "Give Peace a Chance." Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like they still probably, but you know what? Speaking of stuff that's also so Boston, my other friend that went yes. to college there, this is another so Boston thing. They would go out to like the bar and they would get drunk. And then on the way home, they would just fight each other in an alley. Like they were oh best God. friends, but oh they would God. just fist fight so in I was, the alley. Yeah, I believe it. I can, on more than one occasion, I would be like leaving dim sum for like brunch on a Sunday, walk out into Boston and just on the street. A fist fight. And I, like, can I can I say this while saying I love Boston? Yes. Like, I love Boston, but also a, a home Red Sox jersey does not count as dressing up. <laughs> I know it's white. I know it's white, but that doesn't count. You're not dressed up. Boston, you heard it here first. You heard it Get here it first, together. Boston. So my other thing with Boston, like, Boston is simultaneously this really progressive city, but also low-key racist. Low-key racist? <laughs> I was trying to be nice, man. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my favorite low-key racist story about Boston. It actually okay. happened on the other side of the river, this dance club bar, whatever. There were some friends, and they're like, it's 80s night. It's 80s night. So we're like, oh, there's an 80s night here. It's going to be great. Let's go. We get in there. We're drinking. We're dancing. And before you know it, some of the girls in the group, the ladies in the group, rather, Wanted to make some recommendations for some songs. They went to the DJ to ask for some music. And one of them asked for, like, Janet Jackson. And the DJ puts his headphones down, looks her in the eye, and says, This is white 80s night, not black 80s night. Oh, my God. 
And like, it was just so like, what? This is the thing you want to be I'm racist gonna, I'm about? I'm going to go ahead. Uh, as this DJ, I like him thinking like, you got to make a stand somewhere. That's right. Interracial marriage, fine. Integrated <laughs> schools, fine. But my 80s Don't night- you ever come from my 80s night. <laughs> okay, time for a quick break. When we come back, we will talk about Tim trying to make it in the regional theater scene and some crappy jobs he worked. Also more Veep. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent, with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Let ZipRecruiter's powerful technology match your job to the right candidates and use their simple dashboard to find the right hire. That's why 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com minute. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. If you love this podcast, you might also love the TED Radio Hour. It's a show about what it means to be a human. We grieve, we experience joy, sadness, love, and jealousy. We can be cruel and empathetic. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. And at a time when it seems we're so divided, the TED Radio Hour explores what makes us unique among all species. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you get your podcasts. All right, so you mentioned you grew up in New England. You're not there now. How did you leave? Uh, I'm running away from it as fast as oh. I could. No, we should like post no, that's, this thing uh, here being like, we love our New England listeners. We think they're great people. Please keep supporting no, your local member station, etc. I actually really do. I really do love Boston. I grew up in Maine. Yes. So I really wanted, I, you know, I wanted to go to school at Brandeis. I, mm. I, we, I had a friend that went to school there and I just thought it was, a, it seemed like an awesome a place. School, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but when you're like, a, when you're a terrible high school student, you don't get into Brandeis. How terrible were you? I really liked school okay. and I was passionate about learning things. <laughs> uh, it just necessarily, my talents did not necessarily translate to like, you know, regular, just sitting there high school. I wasn't very good at that. I got better at it later. I failed a bunch of stuff early, okay. like freshman and sophomore year so out of the way. a lot of trouble my a lot of trouble my sophomore year mm. and then actually after that my junior and senior year i whatever they call it where you get all a's and b's is that honor roll yes <laughs> okay i was that from then on so there was like i basically i was trying to recover from a really bad first two years which if i'm being super honest it had a lot to do with like it had a lot to do with like depression mm. and uh focus issues and stuff okay. like that so um okay. i'll be honest with you it seems we like we it. like each other we're we cdc eye to eye on we things do. um so that's sort of what it came from but when you're a bad high school student you don't get into brandeis and um i ended up going to the school at the university of maine um, Solid which was exactly what i didn't want to do like i wanted to get out of state i wanted to get as far away from yeah. maine as i could yeah and i ended up having to go deeper into it mm-hmm. but it all worked out great i actually really i really loved going to umaine and that's sort of where i found that's sort of where i started doing plays it's where yeah. i sort of found um the yeah. theater department there, i read that you were is, like thinking about being a doctor then you were like nah i'm gonna do acting it well it you're you're half right. I was okay. thinking about being. I was going to study physics because that was like okay. the one class in high school where I was like, oh man, I'm good at this and I get this and I really like this and I f- aced it. Yeah, and and I was like, oh, I'll just keep doing that. But there's like a huge difference between being good at physics in high school and being a physicist. 
Yeah. And, <laughs> you speak yeah. truth. And so, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you met a lot of physicists, um, uh, but big difference. And so then I just ended up like auditioning for some 10 minute plays. And that's sort of how I found my way to the department. And that was kind of what brought me out of New England because as much as I, my family still lives there, my parents and my sister and my brother, they're all still there. My sister owns a bookstore on the coast. Like it's great. We go back to visit all the time. Nice. Uh, but I just, I knew there wasn't, I mean, if you look at like, how people make a living in Maine, like being an actor really isn't high on Not that list. So yeah, that's what kind of got me out of gotcha. New England. So then you end up, do you go to Chicago right after college? No, I kicked around a little bit. I went to, I worked, um, I, I want to say, I want to preface this with, I love Kentucky. Oh, oh, that came out of left field. How did we yeah. get to Kentucky? What? I got a job working my first job. I went to like this combined audition, which I don't know if you, do you have you, do you, have, you, do you know this world at all? No. There's this thing that you do called like the SETCs, which is the Southeastern Theater Conference, or the UPTAs, which is the Unified Professional Theater Auditions, something like that, yeah. where you go to Memphis or you go to South Carolina and 80 or 100 theaters all go to this one wow. theater and a representative, the artistic director, maybe the casting director, sits in that room while one person after another comes out and does a one-minute monologue and a song or two oh contrasting one-minute monologues. This is like American Idol regional auditions, but for theater. Yes. Wow. And if you hit two minutes, they, they ring a bell and you get the f*** off stage. What was um, your minute or two-minute thing? Oh, shit. There was one from this one-man show that I saw in the Fringe Festival in Minneapolis like the summer before. I took like a minute from that guy's play. Okay. And then the other one was, I think, like a two-person play that came out in the 80s, and it was about a gay couple that had, one of the characters has, has AIDS. Mm. And I think I did a monologue from that. And you did well. And You got a job? I got a job okay. at, uh, as an intern uh, Wait, whoa, whoa, the... whoa, whoa. You go all the way down there. <laughs> yeah. You memorize these monologues. Uh-huh. And they're like, yeah, you can staple these papers for a few months. For nine months. Okay, wow. And this, I, and I walked out of this being like, all right. Um, <laughs> it's a hard business, man. Wow. Uh, I, had to, I went down there. I, went, I moved to Kentucky. It was a nine-month gig. I think I got paid 100 bucks a week. Wow. They house you and they pay your bills. Oh, you just you got to buy food. And that was it. And I lived in the house with all the other interns, kind of like the real world. Yeah. And uh, you just did everything at the theater that you possibly could. Like I stage managed. I ran a light board. I would think I was in four or five shows uh, with parts of, of varying size. Like I worked in the scene shop. I they like the whole idea was you're going to touch everything huh. that goes on at a theater. Um and you're also, if you're a performing intern, you're also going to be able to act in the shows. And it was great. I, it was the Lexington Children's Theater. Uh, and I still keep in touch with... Really? Um, yeah, I still keep in touch with Vivian and Larry, who ran it, who I think had been running it for 20 years when I was there. They and must be so proud years. of you. They, You know what? It actually is really sweet. They are. And I like, you know, like their kids who were in elementary school at the time are like now grown adults. Wow. And like, they're really good people. It was an amazing experience. Kentucky's hard. If you're from the north. Okay. I can see that. And I was also, my first day of work was 9-11. Oh, man. I don't know. I, look, I'm not trying to say that I had the worst day on no, 9-11. No, totally. Totally. That's, and that's not understood. what I'm trying That's to understood. Yeah. And of course, like, my reaction to that was very different than it was to a lot of the people that I was around, which was, look at this. We get to go to war. 
Mm. And my reaction was very different than that. And that was the general attitude that I was sort of surrounded by. So what I realized when I was there was that I just didn't want to like kick around from regional theater to regional theater, like for a couple months at a time. I really wanted, I I wanted to go to a, a city, a major city and get a home base and yeah. live there. And if I got a job at a theater somewhere from that, that would be great. Yeah. But I wanted to live in a city and work in theater in that city. And that's why I went to Chicago. And you were in Chicago for a while. But you didn't just do theater there. If I have read correctly, you, mm-hmm. during your days in Chi-Town, were a bouncer mm-hmm. as well? I had a bunch of different jobs. Okay. Well, I Like, I temped in accounts receivable at a drywall company. Wow. I worked backstage at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and that sort of got me into this world where I was a stage carpenter for a long time. I would, like, audition for plays at night and try to, like, be in rehearsal at night, and I would build sets during the day. And um, and then when I started focusing more on on-camera stuff, I needed to have my days free, so I started working at bars, and I was a bouncer at Joe's on Weed in Chicago, which on the Colbert show, I did, in fact, say it is the worst bar in America. <laughs> And I, st- I want to let everybody, I want to let your listeners know that I stand by that statement. Okay. There, it turned out their Chicago Trib wrote an article a couple days after or the day after. And the last paragraph was, we reached out to Joe's on Weed for comment and we have not heard back. <laughs> and I just love that I was able to troll them so many years later. It's the worst job I've ever had. Really? Because everybody, I don't know if you've seen me, like at the time I was probably 6'5". 180. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I was the biggest dude on that staff. <laughs> Why? Everybody who, else. Who was, ev- who was the manager of security at Joe's on Week? Uh, they didn't they didn't have one. Okay. Their ju- their thought process was we're not going to get them with size cuz it's such a big bar. Yeah. It was like we're not going to get them with size. We're going to pay 25 people $6 an hour. So if something <laughs> did happen, we would literally just overwhelm whatever it was with bodies. You know what? Okay. It's like, would you rather fight a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> we were a hundred duck-sized horses going after these dudes at like this weird Midwestern country bar that also had hip-hop shows. Uh, hip-hop shows, and too. Okay. one of my first nights working was a Ghostface Killer show. and wow. Just um, him or Owl wait, Wu-Tang? No, just him, just okay. Ghostface. Okay. And he had opening acts. Okay. Um, it, it was all going fine. It, it, it was running really late. Like, uh, Ghostface, mm-hmm. like, I mean, he was supposed to go on, I, I think, at, like, 1030 or 11, mm-hmm. and nobody had even heard from him. Like, he was not only not going on, mm-hmm. he wasn't anywhere to be found. And so, like, the whole night had started late. They rolled out the opening acts a little bit late, and people were people were not super happy about how long it was going. Yeah. And so I stole, I told this story on Colbert, and there was something that, and the reason I bring that up is because something happened afterwards, which was really fun. Mm. So um, after Colbert, not after the riot. Gotcha. So basically, <laughs> a phrase um, I've never said myself: after the riot. I love that. <laughs> not after the riot, after Colbert. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you haven't told me why they. An riot. opening act comes yes. on okay. a New York City, New York City hip hop duo, and one of them. I think maybe the crowd wasn't super into his songs. Uh-huh. And so he got upset. And I think his exact words were, fuck Chicago hip-hop, I'm all about New York City. From mm, what I remember. Fighting words. And we were serving glass bottles that night. First and mistake. First mistake. 
And immediately they started raining down on stage. Oh my God. And one of the guys in the band, I don't think the guy, somebody, uh, a bartender told me this later, somebody reached behind the bar and grabbed a tequila bottle, like a full <laughs> Cuervo tequila bottle, oh. and hucked it at the stage. And it hit the other guy oh. in the face. The no! other guy in the duo in the face. He runs oh, off stage. The whole place lights up. Oh my God. Somebody. Um, I find this out. I was re- reminded of this later that somebody took a couch and threw it from the balcony <laughs> on the first floor. You were floor. thinking Boston was bad. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, at some point, 14 cops showed up. I was wearing a shirt that said Joe's on weed on it. And I asked my, name. my manager, like, what I should do. And he said he didn't know. And so I just, or stop it. Like, somehow he was like, I don't know, just stop it. And so. I just took the shirt off and I turned it inside out and just pretended like I was at the show and I joined in with the riot because I was not like the duck sized horses could not overwhelm this. What kind of rioter were you? Were you a glass thrower? Were you a sofa thrower? Were you a puncher? Oh, shit, that reminds me. I did get punched in the face. <laughs> I did get punched in the face before, and I think that was the final straw where I was like, F- this. I'm getting paid $6 an hour. I'm not getting punched in the face for that. And and so I think what I was, I was more of like a, I was more of like a yeller and a fist in the air kind of rioter. Me like, too. I'm just trying to like egg, I wasn't going to destroy something at my place of business. Yeah, you're just or at the my, instigator. my place of work. I wasn't going to instigate any. I, yeah, I was, I was just like, yeah, you should throw that couch. Yeah, like that sort of thing. <laughs> and so I tell this story on Colbert, and I come backstage, and the, the musical act that night was, I believe, the Dan Auerbach band, like okay. side project from the Black Keys. Yeah, yeah. I say that was with a question mark because I don't, <laughs> like you don't follow know. music. Like, the Black Keys? <laughs> the Black Keys? The Black Keys? And he goes, hey, man, uh, I was running the soundboard at Joe's on Weed that night. And we spent 15 minutes going, like, this was one of the things that, like, I, like, in the story, I'd said, like, oh, yeah, the couch had gone from the first floor or from the second, the balcony down to the second floor. And he was like, you're not wrong, but you're not right. It got thrown off the balcony, but it, like, got wedged in between, like, the bow truss of this building and the balcony. So it was kind of just stuck halfway between the balcony in the first I mean, floor. That's a better option than like it hitting someone. So I'll take that. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> and we should close this story by saying, you know, like neither of us condone violence. Of course. In any way. <laughs> of course. It's not, violence is never funny 15 years later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for another break. We'll be right back to talk about how Tim made it into the TV industry. And we'll talk more about Veep. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Discover. You check things all the time, like your email or social media. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with the Discover Credit Scorecard. Discover is offering FICO credit scores to everyone for free, even if you're not a customer. And once you know your FICO credit score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. Okay, back to Veep. I'm sure the question you get all the time 
is how has Trump changed things for you guys on the show in comedy? I don't like we are lucky in that the show exists in this alternate universe, yeah. like in this alternate timeline that stopped. We I think everybody says that we kind of stopped it. It splintered off somewhere around Reagan. Like that's the most recent president that we reference. So somewhere around Reagan, it just went off in two completely different timelines. So we don't we are lucky in that we don't have to really hit Donald Trump specifically at all. Mm. But I do think that much like everybody else, his actual election came as quite a surprise. Mm. So some of the things that this like this this season may have been about at some point, like he's just a joke and you don't have to pay attention to it because that's never going to happen. But when it happens, then you have to have the conversation, whether or not you're going to do it or not. You still have to have the conversation. So people in a pay grade above mine had that conversation. And and that seemed to be how it shook out. That basically, like, we're not going to attack it head on because mm-hmm. we can't. Yeah. Nor, nor, I mean, honestly, and if you want, like, a good Donald Trump joke, all the jokes are done by noon. You know, like, <laughs> we're not going to put something out four months later that, like, has, like, yeah. it's been said. So we could try to hit, like, the things that might, like, we can still satirize the things that might get somebody like him elected. We can still satirize those ideas, but... And Dave, our showrunner, Dave Mandel, has brought up a good point that Selena's already, always had a lot of Trumpian qualities. Totally. Yeah. So how do you, what do you like most about playing Jonah? I think what I've always, like, this relates back to this idea of plays. Like, the reason, one of the reasons I joined is because I didn't really know anybody. And I, it was my freshman year of college. I didn't really know anybody. I was kind of like, I was living in, like, the football dorm and... Like I had asked to live in like the the vegetarian like hippie dorm across campus, <laughs> where everybody did drugs, and I didn't get put in that Wait, one. Someone was trying to screw with you. That was malicious. Somebody was to put trying to in screw the football with me. Dorm. Oh my goodness! And I got put in the football dorm, and like again, it was kind of like being in Kentucky, just like didn't see eye to eye, like with a lot of like what was going on. So I was, I was honestly, I was having trouble finding a community, I think is the best way to say that. And so I auditioned and found a community there. And that's sort of been the thing, like one of the things that I love about it that is very much present in this show is that ensemble has always been incredibly important to me. I just, I do feel like in that way of like, um, like the thing that your grandmother tells you, like rising tides raises all boats, Mm -hmm. like that sort of thing. Like if you have a good ensemble, if you have a a really amazing group of good actors working together that can elevate everything. It elevates good material to great. It elevates great material to legendary and it elevates bad material to, you know, pretty good, you know, or okay or passable. So like an ensemble of actors of people that you can trust, especially because there is a lot of trust involved in this, in this job, yeah. like that you can trust these people mm-hmm. to, to never make you look bad. Even if you up they will figure it out they will find a way to sort of get you back on track or raise you up and like and then not only that you then have the ensemble of the whole thing like writers and directors and actors again all working together like that community that all is working i guess in the and it doesn't happen all the time like working together like that's like the best feeling so that's what i really like about it it's family it's family it's vin diesel voice family. family That, those Family. movies are so awesome. I tell you They're what. They're so awesome. God, I love those movies. I oh, my God. Even, like, we, I went to go see it with, like, my best friends in L.A., like, guys that I was on an improv team with out here. And at one point, you know, I think it was when, is it Tay Diggs? Is that who's in? 
Tyrese That's Gibson. Guy, when, right? No, when when Tyrese Gibson is Ty- ice Tyrese, surfing yeah. on a car door in Antarctica yes. on like a sheet of ice. We stood yes. up and started clapping. <laughs> we stood up out of our seats and started clapping. Yes. And like Ludacris was involved too. There were so many layers to this stuff, there man. There were so many layers. It was amazing. And they usually have a rivalry, but they came they, they got they, over that rivalry. Because family. I'm gonna name him Brian. <laughs> um the uh <laughs> Did you see this thing where uh, somebody brought up the point that, like, in the first Fast and the Furious, which I actually rewatched recently, yeah, and it's great, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the first Fast and the Furious, when they go into Vin Diesel's house for the first time, uh, into I'm sorry, Dominic Toretto's house for the first time, <laughs> ludicrous, you know a ludicrous song is playing. <laughs> then in the next movie or two movies later. The actor Ludacris is introduced into the world as a person who is not Ludacris. Oh, that's like so. Break who's it, that's... singing that Ludacris song oh, in the first is, movie? That's some Inception level mm-hmm. trickery going on in, in in the Fast and the Furious franchise. Think about it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So I was reading before you got Veep, you had never really done TV. You had done like one, like a Geico commercial where you played Abraham Lincoln. But you'd really been a theater and improv kind of guy. How did you move from that to TV? And how was that for you? I had been doing, like, I was in, I was in a Geico commercial playing Abraham Lincoln, which is what uh, snaps introduced for that, me to for the... one. Snaps for that. <laughs> snaps. So I got, that's what introduced me to the casting agency that cast Veep. Um, and Allison the, Jones the, cast you, right? Allison, she's legendary. Yeah, so, yeah. And she's legendary. And that was sort of how I initially got called in there. And I think I, you know, and I, and like that was one of, I had had a pretty good year that year. I think I had done like nine or 10 commercials that year. So like I hadn't really, once I moved out to LA, I focused more on doing improv and, and just trying to make a living. Like, yeah. you know, my wife and I moved out here and like three weeks after we moved to Los Angeles, the 2008 crash. Wow. So I still was out here to do it, but like we had to pay rent. And so Allison Jones somewhere after that Geico thing started calling me in for like day player parts on the office, like coming in for a scene on the office and I, and, and like a few of the different shows that she worked on and I never actually got any of them. Huh. And I hadn't really been doing that long enough that I had developed any sort of like run of co-stars and guest stars on television shows and then upped that to the next thing of being a series regular. It was just sort of like she called me in after like six or seven times of calling in for day players. She called me in for this and I never, I did truly never think that I was going to get it. Because it was just too big of a thing. It was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and it was Armando Iannucci, and it was on HBO, and it was a series regular. Like, I'm never getting that job. Yeah. So it was just like, oh, this is cool. Because that means Allison Jones thinks that maybe I could be a part yeah. of, I could be a larger part of something, which is awesome. So I figured, like, this is great. This is setting groundwork for the next three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, going through the process, like I got called back initially, and then I got called back again, and then I got cast on it. And the things that were transferable yeah. were, I mean, like because Armando's process is very different from like a regular TV show's process, it was that feeling of rehearsal and ensemble that was very much transferable. And I don't know that I would have initially been as successful. I think, I mean, nerves would have gotten to me, mm. you know, or something, but, but it allowed me to feel really comfortable in that room with all those people right away. Yeah. And, and that also is, again, 
going back to ensemble, like that's also to their credit that they were open enough that they were like, yes, come on in here. You are a part of this. You get to be a part of this. You are welcome in here. Like they gave that off. That comes from the top down from Armando and Julia. So, and this was the thing that I remember like my first day when I feel, when I was legitimately feeling super overwhelmed by it. I had never been on a set that big. Um, yeah, I'd never been asked my opinions about something, especially in commercials. It's kind of like, no, you're going to wear this. You're going <laughs> to wear that and top hat, over... damn it. You're going to wear that top hat. You think I'm taking that top hat off you? No, you're <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. And th- that somebody would even ask my opinion of something was did take some getting used to. But I remember when I was feeling overwhelmed about it on my first day. And it was like, remember, I very clearly remember the scene. And it was the first scene that I ever appeared in mm-hmm. where Mike says I look like a guy from my left foot. Um, I just remember thinking like, I've never done this before. I've never been on a giant set of an HBO pilot with these people, but I've definitely been in a room and spoken to seven people before. So I was just like, try to do that and we'll see if we can make it through the day without being fired. (laughs) Okay, Tim, time is short. You have to run. We're going to end it soon, but got to ask about what it's like to work with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I mean, I'd be scared at first. She is the goat. It, I mean, for sure. For sure it's intimidating, but I, she casts it off so I- immediately. I mean, she was very open and funny in the, the audition process. And Okay, so she was there for the audition as well. Yeah, so she oh, okay. was there for both callbacks. So I, but I had only really met her in that circumstance of being like, "Hello, so nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for having me in mm-hmm. and all that." And then we did the scene and we improvised a little bit, and but you didn't really get a chance to know her. And so I was still really nervous about being on Best Behavior and like yeah. wearing like dressing nice and like again, this goes back to like the thing about me. Like I think I was probably, I think our rehearsal started at ten ten in the morning on a Monday. I I think I was in the rehearsal room at nine oh five. I was sitting there for 55 minutes because I was not going to be late. And it was in the hotel. We were rehearsing in one of the conference rooms in the hotel that I was staying in. I could have left 30 seconds before it started and still would have been early. But she so immediately kind of cast it off. I was like, hey, I'm Julia. This is going to be so much fun. Like, let's get into it. Let's do a table read and let's rehearse and let's throw out ideas. And then just like in the off time was so willing to hear jokes and just her personality is she likes having a good laugh. So Mm -hmm. this idea, like when you're just sitting around, you make a couple jokes and one makes her laugh. You're like, oh, okay. Like this, this is transferable into the work too. Like this idea that we can just pitch jokes and try to make each other laugh. Tim, this was so great. Thank you. Like, I really appreciate it. Man, this has been really fun. Really fun. Enjoy that L.A. sunshine. Thanks, man. I will. All right. All right. Talk soon. Okay. Thank you to Tim Simons. Veep Season 6 wrapped last week. Check it out on HBO. We're back on Friday with our regular Wrap of the Week. Be sure to email us at samsanders at npr.org. Record yourself, your voice, telling me the best thing that happened to you all week, and it could be featured in those weekly wraps. Until then, have a safe and happy 4th of July. Go America. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.